Diakonasa Cops Calling is sponsored by Luciano's Woodworking. Luciano's Woodworking is owned and operated by Carlos Luciano Jr., and he works with each of his customers to create hand-carved wooden plaques, signs, wall hangings, and more. Currently, he is working on a wall hanging for Diakonasa Cops Calling, and I am super excited to see it once it's completed. He's worked with me to meet the style, the colors, the print, and the frame I want for this project. You can see his talented work. Just check out Luciano's Woodworking on Facebook and Instagram. Whether you want a welcome sign for your home, a plaque to display challenge coins, a hand-carved piece of your favorite sports team, a personalized stovetop cover, retirement plaques for those in the military or in law enforcement, wall art for rooms in your house, or any other similar project, he can do it. Carlos is a full-time police officer, a husband, and a father, but he enjoys kicking up the dust with this side hobby. He's a busy guy, but you will not be disappointed as you patiently wait for him to complete your project. So check out Luciano's Woodworking right now on Facebook and Instagram. See his work, share his work, share him on social media, and then let him know what project you'd like him to start for you. This podcast is for grown-ups only. Whoa, whoa, whoa. We need a stronger warning for this episode. This episode definitely has bad words. What does it have? Bad words. And what else does it have? And content that is not for little ears. I will say, though, when I was in Vice, I did have dreams a couple times that I got sent back to patrol. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they were like nightmares. Like I always woke up and I'm thinking, man, am I in patrol or am I still in vice? Yeah, I'd realize oh, I'm still in vice. I'd be like, oh, thank God. You know, trying to um, get the girls over there. You know, one helicopter would land, pick a girl up, take off. Another one would come down. Welcome to Diakonasa Cops Calling. I'm Anthony Weaver, and this episode is going to be part two with retired trooper Jason Loudermilk. Before that, I just wanted to quickly point out that there are several ways you can stay up to date with what's going on with the podcast. The first is to follow me on the Diakonas A Cops Calling Facebook page or on Twitter at mtonyw. You can also subscribe to the podcast email updates. To do that, simply shoot me an email at diakonasacc at gmail.com and ask to be added to the podcast email list. Please make sure you also check out diakonasacc.podbean.com if you want to find out more about the podcast and its mission, and if you want to become a patron supporter of the podcast. Finally, a little teaser about next week's episode. Uh, You will hear the first part of my conversation on that episode with retired Detective Brad Ortenzi, who is currently the Eastern USA Regional Director for Zoe International. You don't want to miss that interview as Brad discusses his past work in law enforcement and his current work at Zoe International, a nonprofit that works to rescue and restore children who are survivors of child trafficking in the States and abroad. On top of that, retired detective uh, Brad Ortenzi is a past Q the Dip winner, and uh, so you're definitely going to want to tune in and listen to uh, that story, how he became a Q the Dip winner. Uh, and and some of the things he works on at Zoe International, along with past stories from his career. All right, last week, retired trooper Jason Loudermilk talked about the PSP Academy, the Pennsylvania State Police Academy, and his time in Vice. On this episode, we continue to talk about his time in Vice, his canine named Eva, and the Nickel Mines Amish School shooting. Can I say hello to my son, Josh, because he's probably going to listen. 
I always seemed like I was, I always felt like I was that kid that if uh, somebody had a, like the shortcut to get to the, to the park was going through this person's yard and they had a stay off the grass sign. I always felt like I can't go on that grass. Why everybody else ran across it. Yeah. I don't know. It's always weird for me to try and explain that. Okay. But in my mind, like I, I always was, I don't want to say that walk the straight and narrow, but like, yeah, I always thought about consequences. Yeah. You know, for things and, and try not to get in trouble and try and distance myself from, from people that uh, were doing things that I knew that they shouldn't be doing. And yeah, I think that's interesting. I've, I've talked on several episodes about consequences. So, and you said you, you thought about consequences a lot. Is that because of the way you were raised? Like, did that have anything to do with uh, your parents or in the way you were raised that you thought about consequences or maybe I needed medicated. I don't know. <laughs> I don't, I just, I don't think it was anything about that. Like, I mean, did you grow up in a strict home or did you grow up in just like a, you know, I'd say just normal. Okay. I definitely wasn't over strict. My parents were divorced. Okay. Um, at a young age, uh, I have a twin brother and he definitely, at least through junior high, high school and stuff probably wasn't the straight and narrow like me. Um, so yeah, I don't know what exactly made me that way. Okay. No, it's, it's interesting because most people would say, oh, yeah, I grew up a certain way. And, and I've actually expressed that on a lot of my episodes that, you know, generally speaking, consequences are needed to train and correct and, and guide people. But you're, you feel like it was just kind of just something that was innate in you, the, just the way you was, kind of were. Like I guess it was probably something I needed medicated for. But. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I doubt it. I it seems have. like a it seems like a good trait that I mean it's a good trait. Yeah, to have. I mean I like I don't know. I mean just with the profession, I kind of felt like I mean I guess I could have been clergy or something too, but right. You know, like hey, you have to have certain qualities I feel to to be a police officer and, right. and not being a rule breaker if you want to say it that way is probably a good one. Yeah. Although yeah. I've worked with several Police officers have done state time and, yeah. you know, did stupid things and yeah. pay the consequence. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it, I mean, it's a, it's a high, uh, high morals, high character, high integrity type job. I mean, uh, you know, I don't think there's really any excuse for someone to be in it that, that doesn't operate like that. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, that's interesting. So you get into that. Um, and you were in that for well, 2008 to 2011, quite, quite a while. Almost nine years. Yeah. Did you, did you, so you said when you got in, you felt like, oh, I could do this the next, the rest of my career. Did you feel that way all the way up until when you got out? Or did you get out because you're like, never mind, I can't do this the rest of my career? I got burned out. Yeah. I, it was probably, if I remember correctly, I was two months shy of nine years. Okay. And probably the last, well, from the time I wanted, wanted out and submitted my letter to go back to patrol, I think it was probably two months before I was let go of my, um, from that job to go back to patrol. It was probably six months before that, that I kind of just, I got burned out. I didn't want to deal with, with informants anymore. I didn't want them. I was tired of them calling me at three o'clock in the morning because they just got stopped for speeding and they expect me to get them out of a speeding ticket, you know, or them calling me up because they got arrested saying that they're, 
at somebody's house trying to do work for me. You know, it's like, I didn't tell you to go to that guy's house. Oh, I'm trying to, you know, you told me to let you know if I come up with any new work, I'm trying to work this angle. You know, it's like (laughs) BS, man. Right. Like, just get tired of that. And um, I got to the point there, you know, I I just didn't want to work. I didn't want to do buys. I didn't want to deal with CIs. I didn't want to do anything. And uh, I didn't want to, again, I could have stayed. I just didn't want to be labeled, you know, if I... If I had to say one thing is the negative with me, like throughout my career, I cared too much about what other people thought about me that I worked with, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of kept me from putting in for certain jobs and stuff like that. But, um, I didn't want people thinking, Oh, look at this guy. He ain't doing anything. He's up there, you know, driving a state car, wearing whatever he wants to wear. And he don't, he, I never see him arresting anybody. I never see him go out doing work. You know, I don't want to be labeled like that. And that's not my personality. You know, I want right. to work. Yeah. So, you know, you can always go back to patrol and in the state police. That's, that's the beauty of it. That's kept secret. I, I think you can pretty much do that anywhere. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I, I, can, uh, I can relate to a lot of things you said there, caring a lot about what other people thought. I mean, that, that drives you. It drove me to, to, uh, to do a lot of things and a lot of dumb things and, and yeah, it, it's a driving force, but it also, it can tend to burn you out then because you, you go in with this like ferociousness into everything you do, um, which, which can have some effects on the back end and, and, and burn you out. So yeah, when I left, when I left SEU, I had only done four years back there and yeah, I was, I was pretty, pretty spent by the end of those four years. And I, I, were you excited to go back to patrol? I, I was excited. I was excited. Yeah. And then I was very excited, you know, just excited, but at the same time thinking to myself like, ah, oh, man, I hope I didn't make a mistake here. Because again, like I'm going from basically working a Monday through Friday gig. Um, I mean, we'd work a weekend now and then, but for whatever reason, all these specialty positions, I don't know if it's like that with you guys, it is was with the units that I worked with. I'm not going to say the whole state, but um, a lot of times guys didn't work the weekends, you know, because you were making your own shift and this and that. And a lot of times they wanted us to work noon to eights, you know, and it was like, uh, I can buy dope at, from certain people. I can actually buy dope at seven in the morning. Like I don't need to right. work a two to 10 or a four to midnight or something like that. Like I can work a day shift right. and actually still do my job. Like right. they don't all sleep like, you know, actually buying dope in the morning is one of the best times to buy in the city. Anyways, you could, you could buy dope seven, eight in the morning. That was actually a really good time to buy. Yeah. Cause everyone needed their fix from, yeah. Yeah. yeah on their way to work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so you were excited to get back to patrol. I know I was excited to get back to patrol. I loved getting back to patrol. I felt like being on SEU, as I'm sure you did being on that vice unit helped you be a better patrol officer and uh and you're shaking your head yes yeah. so you immensely you felt, yeah and i i tell i would tell new cadets that um things that i learned being in vice to try and help them out starting off their career like definitely it helped me write more detailed reports definitely that you touched on it earlier talking to people like i always tell people that's probably the thing that being in vice helped me out with the most 
is learning how to talk to people. Cause sometimes you just got to sit there and BS with somebody for a half hour for some reason, you know, and I would do it, um, over anything. I mean, I could talk to anybody about anything probably for half hour or something like that. But later on in my career, you know, if we were searching a car and I was with the occupants of the car, well, you can't have that guy stand there on the side of the road and just stare at you while you're, you know, your buddies are searching the car. You kind of right. try and take his, uh, yeah. his mind off of what's going on there to read him to see, okay, is he, to keep looking over there? Is he getting nervous when they're at a certain point or what? But you're trying to, you know, keep them occupied with, with other stuff. And I definitely felt like being in vice, just kind of having to come up with stuff sometimes off the, yeah, out of nowhere, yeah, you know, and talking to people and stuff like that definitely helped me out. Yeah. You just get really good at reading people Yeah, and reading what they're doing. And, and, uh, yeah, it, it, it can be super, super helpful. Um, so then you, when you went back to patrol, how long were you on patrol then before you got canine? Uh, right around three years. Okay. I will say though, when I was in vice, I did have dreams a couple of times that I got sent back to patrol <laughs> and they were like nightmares. Like I always woke up and I'm thinking, man, am I in patrol or am I still in vice? You know, I'd realize oh, I'm still in vice. I'd be like, oh, thank God. But and, yeah, they, I mean, there. I won't ever say that when I went back, like I thought, man, I, I made a mistake. I shouldn't have done this. Like I didn't feel like I was in patrol long enough to begin with. There were definitely things that that I didn't get out of my system yet, you know, things that I wanted to do. Um, I want to say, Hey, I only had X amount of pursuits. I wanted to get in a couple more, you know, stuff like that. But there was definitely some things, you know, the the technology changed with the cars had computers. And now I didn't have to call dispatch to run driver's license checks and registrations and all that stuff. I could do criminal histories and my, you know, a bunch of stuff you could do in the cars now. And I was like, man, this is kind of neat. Like I want to go back and, um, you know, I just want to handle some of these, these type incidents. I'm, I'm done dealing with everything that I deal with. And the way that I kind of told a couple people was, um, I wanted to get back with, with dealing with good people. Yeah. You know, unfortunately when we see them, good people, we see them on their worst days. Right. You know, but when I was doing drug work, like I don't want to say everybody was a bad person, but everybody that you dealt with from people you're trying to buy from to the informants, most of the informants were trying to work charges off. They were all criminals. It wasn't like your ordinary run of the mill civilian that, you know, works 40 hours a week and, you know, goes to the beach with their kids and, yeah. you know, and all that stuff. And it, it was refreshing to get back to, um, trying to help those people out, seeing those little kids, uh, you know, when you're there and they're looking for you to you as, you know, to, to help them and stuff like that. And, and that was nice to be able to get back to feeling like I was helping pe- helping the people. Right. Rather than just trying to buy, you know, drugs and do right. those drug investigations. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, vice work, it's just grimy work. Yeah. Like it's everyone you rub shoulders with is, is in the game yeah. and grimy and like, and it, and it's just grimy on, on the police end. Cause you're, using people involved in the game to help you be involved in the game and make arrests. And it's just, um, it's just, it's just how the, how it has to be played. But yeah, you never get a call like on patrol. Yeah. A lot of the people you deal with are in terrible situations and it's usually not good circumstances that you're meeting, but you still get people that are calling you that are legitimate victims 
thefts, whatever it may be. And like you said, you're, you're getting to help, help people. Or just down to that disabled motorist has got right. a flat tire or something like that, and they or can't even, change it themselves. Or even someone you pull over for a traffic stop is probably on their way to work and, you know, yeah. is, is usually a decent person. Maybe they're not a decent person when you pull them over, but yeah. <laughs> usually they're a decent person. Uh, yeah, so it's, it's just a different flavor to the job. Absolutely. So. So, so then did you put in for canine or did you, did that just kind of fall into your lap too? Or is that something that you really wanted to do? No, that before I got on the job, I wanted to do canine. I wanted to do vice. Okay. So it's still like that now with, uh, to get in the canine with the state police, you have to be a trooper to apply. So I never, I mean, I took promotion tests, but I never studied for anything. I mean, I got close a couple of times early on in my career. And uh, I'm glad it never came to the point that I had to think about that because that's, like I said, canine is something that I wanted to do. I had 15 years on before I got in there. And uh, I had put in for canine once before, um, years, years earlier than that. I was still in vice, but I was newer in vice. I might have only had like four years. And uh, at the time, I had a six-month-old German Shepherd. And I thought, there's no way I can deal with this six-month-old German Shepherd and get a police dog. Like, I can't do it. It's, there's no way I can do it. So I rescinded my letter, and I didn't test. And then I got to the point when I was in patrol where I knew um, there were some openings not too, too far. They weren't, like, out of Pittsburgh area. Some that were central to East Pennsylvania. Um, heard that they were some spots that were going to be open. I knew some guys that were going to be retiring and, uh, I just put in for it. Okay, cool. Got it. And Got it. Uh, how long did you have the canine? Uh, six years. Okay. What was the canine's name? Eva. Eva? Eva. E-V-A. Okay. Yeah, well, I still have her today. Oh yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. I think that is one cool thing about canine. You know, once they retire, usually the canine handler keeps keeps the dog do you still have the german shepherd too Nah, that one's passed passed away yeah that All one's right. would have been i don't I know guess. like 15 or something yeah now, 16 yeah um so w- was it uh what kind of dog like what was the specialty was it drugs or was it yeah she's a uh, belgian malinois and she's a narcotics detection okay and uh when you are a trooper and you have a canine are you just kind of are you still answering calls? Or are you just pretty much, you just have the canine and you, you can do your own stuff with the canine or just get Just called? responsible for whatever calls for service for the dog is the only okay. thing you're responsible for. Okay. Yeah. So you, I, I know we talked before going online here, the, the very first uh, trap that you're, that Eva, Eva, right? Yep. Um, I can pronounce her, her name. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's like one of those things like uh i can pronounce her name better than i can pronounce your last name well a lot, uh, of, I've been people, a lot of people said ava but it's eva eva yeah. okay um so uh yeah you you talked uh when we were offline about one of the very first traps eva found can you what's a trap and what was that like like a uh, trap can either be um i mean they use natural voids in vehicles Okay. So there's tons of natural voids in the vehicle. Um, technically, that wouldn't be a trap. A trap's usually an aftermarket mechanical um, area that's 
either cut out, fabricated, whatever. A lot of times they have uh, piston-driven doors, locks, stuff like that. And some, you know, you might just have to hit something on your key fob. Some you might have to have the fan on high, the heat on, press the back window down and do something else. Like there's all kinds of different um, sequences of things that you might have to do to open it. But this one, I think we just pried open because we couldn't figure it. Uh, Actually, you know what? I think we found the wires and got a jump box and hooked them up to a jump box. Okay. And that ended up opening it up. And then how much did you find in there? Uh, That one was, I think, 3.3 pounds of cocaine. Okay. So That's a lot of cocaine. Yeah, it was, uh, it seems small now to me when I look at and see what the unit's doing now, but okay, um, with stuff and what guys are getting. I mean, my one buddy, he got like 12 kilos on uh, Interstate 78 on a cold stop. Like, wow. Yeah, that was, you know, made me think my little over a kilo is like, oh, wow. <laughs> you know, but it was right. one of those things with, um, it was on the turnpike and, got called up there i was when i first got out of uh basic uh handler school i was stationed down in philadelphia and i was down there for like eight months and i wasn't getting used much um which you would think philadelphia it's got to be like a hotbed like you should be finding stuff every day down there if you're finding kilos you should be finding it down there right um i just wasn't getting used a whole lot uh down there and the dog she'd hit certain areas in cars and then we wouldn't find anything, you know, but the car would smell like weed or, you know, stuff like that. Right. Um, and I don't remember if I was still up there and nobody was available that I ended up going to this one or if I was actually back out of the Lancaster barracks covering a canine, uh, for troop J out of Lancaster at that time or not. But I got called up there. Um, never found anything big to that, to that point put her in the car and when I put her in the front door on the passenger side, she immediately was a, wasn't an explorer, but it was like an explorer type vehicle. Might I forget what it was. Navigator. I think it was. Okay. And, uh, she went right back in between the second and third row seats. There was like a armrest type thing or something. And, uh, she alerted and indicated right in this area and wouldn't leave it. And I was like, and is she messing with me or, you know, and I remember they always taught you, you know, trust your dog. Like if you got to learn how to read your dog, but if it does what you are reading correctly, like you got to trust it. Like whether you think there's no way there's anything there. Right. You know, and I thought, man, I, I don't know. Like this seems like where it was, it seems like a weird place for it to be or something like that. And then, uh, the guy who stopped it was one of our full-time interdiction guys. And uh, I think he had seen a wire, and then he was able to see um, some stuff, I think air freshener or something inside this metal, um, this little gap in the metal somewhere. And uh, he's like, man, we got a trap. You know, so it was just, yeah, it was cool. Yeah. Just watching it open and and there actually being something there, because we've hit some traps before that were empty. Right. You know, and it's like, oh man, what's going to be here? You know, dog's right. crushing this, and you know, you open the trap, and there's nothing, there's nothing there. In there. Yeah, was that the biggest? Was that the biggest one you found? The biggest mount you found in a trap with with Eva? With a 
With an actual trap, yeah. There's okay. a couple kilos in like natural void areas. Okay. Um, you know, a lot of cash like indoors and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's cool. I always liked getting the cash. I always yeah. thought that annoyed people more than anything. Yeah. But although yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean I, I like the cash better. I mean my thought was always like you can forfeit the cash, like the drugs just get destroyed. Like right. the Commonwealth isn't getting nobody's getting any right proceeds from this right but you know i mean and it was good like i'd always ask people don't search the car if you're going to use me like if you're going to call me after the fact because you think there's something there and you can't find it and you want the dog to find it for you don't call me because you just disturbed all the odor that's in that vehicle um but i remember getting called one time where they couldn't find it. it was in the city and uh I put her in the car and I was actually surprised. I like, I think all the city dogs were off or something like that. And I was in the area and, uh, somebody called me. I don't remember. Maybe I knew one of the guys there and, uh, she went in there and, and hit on both sides of, uh, um, the back seat and stuff like that. And I forget how many bricks of heroin there end up being back there, okay. but it was like, wow. Like, you know, why well, I've had people search cars and, not find stuff and then if she can find it it's like wow that's like just the tool that that they right that they give you it's unbelievable right so being in that being in that work work like working vice having the canine finding drugs finding cash doing the street level stuff this this put i did want to ask you because this is like an expertise in your career for for quite a while this push to uh, you know, Pennsylvania right now is medicinal marijuana is legalized, um, but there's a push to fully legalize it or or decriminalize it. What what's your view on what's your view on that? As someone who as someone who did the work, and um, yeah, I was just curious to fi- hear your view on it. I mean, I'm probably old school. I mean, just the way I've always been raised and through the job and everything like that. Like, I still, I don't think it should be legalized. Um, But at the same time, now that I'm retired, like, as long as you ain't smoking it next to me or, you know, around my kid or something like that, like, hey, have at it, do whatever you want to do. Like, it doesn't bother me anymore. Like, I think it used to. I mean, it's everywhere. I mean, I just smell it two days ago. I was at, PennDOT in Harrisburg and walking through the parking lot, I'm like trying to figure out what car it's coming out of in the parking lot. Like it was right. Hit you in the face. Right. You know, I mean, I understand, you know, the whole time, you know, doing the work, you know, guys would always be like, Oh, it's just, you know, it's a plan. It's out there. It's just like tobacco, this and that. And I don't know, I guess just, you know, going back to that, uh, always walking the, the straight line and, and all that stuff. Like it's always, to me it's always been illegal i mean i understand what it is um my biggest issue with them legalizing it is i know towards the end of my time in patrol like we were getting almost as many duis from people smoking weed as we were alcohol right you know like it just every i mean everybody does it now like yeah like i said i never did you said you never did but to go out there right now and and talk to a 22 year old 23 year old that's never done it, you're probably not going to find one. Yeah. Very few. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, uh, the reason I, the reason I, this coming up is 
my last episode that I did uh, was that Ask Me Anything episode. And that was one of the questions that came up for me. And I, I mean, I never sat down and really, really thought about it. I always, I, w- I always thought it was a bad idea. I didn't think it would really, you know, cut down on the black market for it. Uh, like you said, I, I know that a lot more people are smoking in and driving and stuff like that. Um, and that's a valid point. Like I, yeah. I actually did this question forced me to do a little more research on it. And yeah, it, it's absolutely true. The states that have legalized it, their, their DUIs for it and the accidents involving it have, have gone up. Uh, substantially so i was just curious if it was something that you really thought about now i have other yeah like you said i there's other guys i work with they're like they're like hey you know when i retire if it's legalized i'm smoking weed yeah you know i've worked with a couple of those and i've worked with a couple that i won't be surprised if they were when they before they did retire but (laughs) um you know there's a lot of from stuff that that i've read before too there's a lot of health issues right you know with smoking it as well what it does to you and like I don't know. I, I know some people that I don't want to say are regular marijuana smokers, but I think they probably uh, they smoke very often. That just I don't know when you when you hear the old stereotype of a of a pothead like that's it. Like right. they just seem like to get them to do anything. Right. You know. Like yeah. hey, hey, if you want to do it in your in the in your basement. And you don't do it around your kids, like, um, and you're not going anywhere after you smoked it. Whatever, like, right? We can have this discussion, but yeah, you know, keep it away from me. I don't need it. Right? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I don't think it's, uh, you know, I don't think it's helpful. And, uh, um, you know, there's. Here's the thing: legislators make the law. Police will enforce whatever the law is. Uh, towards the end of my career, the legalized medicinal marijuana just completely muddied the waters and just made it a lot more difficult for a street cop to do his job. Yeah. And it was being abused left and right. Well, it's, I'll tell you who else is harder for is for uh, you know those dogs that are yeah. already trained on. You can't untrain a dog on an odor. Right. Like you almost have to, if they would legalize it, Dependent on on how the regulations read, you'd almost have to take every dog out of service and get new ones and yeah. imprint them in odors that didn't include marijuana. Right. Because I can't tell you know like you guys, can't. Guy, guys would always tell me like, oh your dog did this like w- what did it find like is it coke is it heroin? It's like I don't know like she can't tell me what odor <laughs> she smelled. It's <laughs> one of her trained odors that she's alerting and indi- or indicating to you know what I mean. It's like. You should have just messed with those guys and been like, well, let me call her over and then I'll, I'll talk to her. And depending how she barks, I'll let you know what she found. You yeah. Know, well, that was always, sort of the, that was always a big thing. Cause the, um, the canine unit with the Pennsylvania state police are all single purpose. So they're not patrol dogs. They're not bite dogs or just detections, just sniffers. Oh, really? Yeah. And we don't teach ours an aggressive, um, indication. So they don't scratch at source. They don't bark, stuff like that. So the amount of times that I was out doing searches and uh, the occupants of the vehicle are like, man, you're lying. Like th- your dog didn't bark once. You're lying. Like, like we'll see you in court. Like you're making this all up just to get into my car and search it. 
you know, especially once Gary, you know, came over and, you know, you could start searching cars out on the road. Right. You didn't need the search warrant anymore. Like, hey, you're just saying that, you know, to give yourself probable cause you can search my car. Right. You know, it's like our dogs aren't trained to do that. Right. Like when we go to court, I'll explain exactly what my dog did and and all that because I watch the MVR videos, you know, before I write the report. Right. Make sure there's nothing that I miss while I was handling and yeah. 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 Oh, that's just people not understanding yeah. like what they're seeing or what they're looking at. Yeah. You know, it's like the But I mean it's it's kind of I mean I'm I'm all right with that. Yeah. You know, I had a defense attorney that I dealt with probably a hundred times when I was in Vice, you know, a real good defense attorney. Got along with him really well. And uh I came in front of him for uh something when I was running the dog. And I thought, oh man, I, this is good. I haven't seen this guy in about five years. Like, I can't wait for him to hammer me, you know, on the stand and and just throw everything back at him. And uh, DA's office got done asking me questions. They went over to him, and he's like, "I have no questions for this witness." And I asked him after the thing, I'm like, "What was up with that?" Like, I was I was ready, man. I was prepared. I was right. ready, you know, to do battle with you. And uh, he's like, "Look." I could bring an expert in here and he could tell me, you know, a dog should do this, a dog should do that, but that ain't your dog. Like your dog could do something totally different. Like you're the only one that knows what your dog does, you know? Right. And it's like, yeah, you know what? I never thought about it that way. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the one other thing I I did want to talk to you about kind of moving away from the drug stuff is when you were, when you were in the vice unit back in October, 2006, uh, I mentioned it in the, in the opening the uh, Nickel Mines Amish shooting. And, and for those who don't know about that or remember that, that was the uh, armed, an armed suspect took 10 girls hostage at an Amish one-room schoolhouse, uh, shot them and, and at the police, the police being Pennsylvania State Police uh, were the primary responders to that. Uh, the state police that, was on, that were on the scene at that time stormed the school, uh, which ultimately forced the suspect to kill himself as, as they gained entry. Uh, ultimately, five of those little girls were killed, and uh, the others the others survived. I believe, if I if I have my facts straight, you you're you're quick to point out that you were not one of the first responding troopers to that scene, um, but you did ultimately arrive on that scene. You were one of the troopers that was there, kind of in the aftermath after that happened, um, and and after that shooting took place. I think pretty soon after the shooting had taken place, can you? Can you just talk about, so you were on the vice unit at that point. Obviously, your uh, main mission and main goal is not to respond to stuff like that immediately. You're not, you're not on the road and, and in uniform and doing stuff like that. But can you just talk about some of the stuff you heard over the radio, how you found out about this call going on, and, and how you ended up going there? Yeah, at the time, I was in the, up in our vice office with uh, one other guy from the unit. Um, and I just happened to walk out and go down into the patrol room and I heard somebody down there talking about a, uh, a hostage situation at a school. And I was like, oh, like what school? Like, cause I wasn't real familiar, uh, with everything in that coverage area that the state police had a Lancaster barracks covered because I didn't work patrol, um, in that area. I worked down in Southern Chester County, not in Lancaster County. 
so I thought like, oh, it's, it must be a real school. Like, I don't know, like what school, you know, I had no idea. So then I had got a radio and uh, I'm listening to guys talking about, um, you know, where to park when you get there, where are they setting up, you know, stuff with the perimeter and all that stuff. And uh, I'm thinking, man, this is, it sounds intense. Like, I don't know. I Maybe we should go. Like, this isn't something we go to, but. Like I'm still a police officer, you know, my partner's still a police officer. If they can use additional people for this, you know, I don't know if they were going to call our, um, special emergency response team, you know, get negotiators down there or anything like that or what. So, uh, I walked over into the, the crime room, which was right by the vice office. And I noticed there weren't a, nobody was there. So, and then I talked to somebody like, yeah, they all left. Like they went to this hostage thing. And I'm thinking, oh, man. So I end up calling somebody, and they're like, nah, for now, just stand down where you're at. Um, and I'm like, man, like, I don't like just sitting here. Like, man, there's, there's things going on. Right. It doesn't feel right. No, it doesn't feel right. So I end up calling. Uh, he ended up retiring as a major, but he was a, a sergeant at the time. He was a, I guess you would say he was the incident commander out there for the, uh, for the incident. And I end up calling him, and I'm like, hey, do you need us to come out there? And he's like, get out here as soon as you can. Grab every long gun, every shield, you know, anything you think that we need and get out here. So we grabbed all that stuff. Um, I didn't even know how to even, I don't know exactly where it was. Like I said, I didn't know how to operate the, even the radio in this car at that point. It was, you know, seven years since I was in a, in a marked police car. Right. Um, it had a computer in it. I don't know what was going on. (laughs) So my partner, he had just, uh, he wasn't in patrol. He was in patrol a lot sooner. Yeah, he left uh, later, so he had more time away from patrol than I did. And uh, he drove. He knew where it was at. And we're flying down uh, the road. Thank God there was a center turn lane pretty much the entire way out that we had to go because nobody was yielding the whole way. We're flying out there, and I'm just hearing, you know, all the uh, all the communication between. At the time, we were in a uh, centralized dispatch center so we weren't being dispatched out of the station we were actually being dispatched out of harrisburg there was a uh, central dispatch center out there that did multiple stations multiple troops so they were relaying the information and uh i remember we're getting close to where it's at and uh they were saying hey we got the uh the suspect on the phone he stated something to this effect that uh i want all the state police out of here uh, in two seconds or I'm going to start shooting. And yeah, through my head, I'm like, it's not going to happen. Right. They always say that it's like the movies, you know? And, uh, it felt like two seconds later that, and when you actually look at the time frame on it, I think it was maybe five minutes or something. I don't know exactly what it was, but it wasn't two seconds. It was a couple minutes, but it didn't feel that way. You know, you, you heard, uh, one of the, the corporal on scene yelling shots fired, shots fired, get in there, get in there. You know, and you just heard all kinds of stuff going on. Um, you know, cause they had talked prior to that, you know, Hey, there were, uh, some cinder block outhouse type things on the one side corner of the, uh, the schoolhouse, you know, some guys were there. One of the guys on scene, one of the crime guys was actually one of our hostage negotiators, or not hostage negotiators, but it was a negotiator with our CERT team. 
So they were trying to hail the guy, you know, with the, uh, the PA system on the car and everything. And you could hear all that radio communication going back and forth. And, uh, you know, cars just getting there and, um, description of the vehicle coming out, you know, asking like whose vehicle is it registered to and stuff like that. Um, checking doors, you know, figuring out that, Hey, the front door is locked. Well, yeah, it was barricaded too, you know, along with everything else inside. Um, and then just hearing that shots fired and thinking, man, if, if we would have only left when I called the first time, we would have been there. Not that, you know, looking back on it, like it wouldn't have mattered if I was there or not. There was nothing that we were going to do. The two of us that we're going to do that we're going to out change the outcome of that situation. Right. Um, I just felt like we should have been there. Like we're police officers at this barracks too. Like something that's like, it was the most serious thing. I felt like I experienced my whole 25 years. I mean, I've been to homicides and murder suicides and stuff like that. But this was like, you know, 10 little girls, right. You know, between the ages of like seven and 14. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, we end up getting out there right as they were, he was already deceased. He ended up shooting himself. Um, they made, they breached the window, um, got, started getting the girls out. And, uh, so they were getting them out when we pulled up. So pretty much everybody that was already there, because I believe there was, I'm trying to think how many people were there initially. Um, I don't remember, but pretty much everybody had already had one of the girls. Um, they brought nine of them out. There was one that uh, I believe remained inside because she was already, they knew that she was deceased, mm -hmm. would be my guess. Um, so people were tending to all of them. I was there with one of the guys. Uh, behind him why he tended to this one girl who ended up later actually died right there with him mm -hmm. uh and then all the medevac helicopters started showing up uh the ambulances started showing up i think there was like i want to say five medevac helicopters so just to see five helicopters hovering overhead you know it was like um i, I talked about this a little bit during our breaching um we taught breaching to the cadets up at the academy and you know we have a lot of guys that are veterans or military guys you know come straight from the military um into the academy or you know maybe they did something else for a couple of years but a lot of veterans up there and i always tell them like i wasn't in the military but and i was never in a war zone but looking up and seeing them helicopters like that had to be the closest thing and just seeing the carnage right um like it was unreal you know, trying to, um, get the girls over there, you know, one helicopter would land, pick a girl up, take off. Another one would come down, you know, multiple police agencies there, you know, people just showing up all day long, you know, but then, uh, you know, fairly soon, once they started, uh, medevac and the, the girls out of there, I ended up getting moved to the rear of the school. Um, there was a large farm back behind there and there was a f wooden fence back there but they needed a rear you know security to make sure at that time that we started getting a couple uh news helicopters flying in the area and and right. stuff like that pulling up so we had a you know you got to secure the whole thing the whole way around so right that's pretty much where i stayed then you know until i was relieved for the day yeah it was back to the rear yeah you said so he had the front door barricaded did he have the windows barricaded too in as far way? as i know they had a, he had everything i mean he yeah. they brought in a bunch of lumber um 
multiple firearms, uh, multiple rounds, toilet paper, you know, right. Eye bolts, flex cuffs. Yeah. You know, like, cause he had, he had, he had flex. Had he, um, secured the girls too? I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember all the details. I mean, it was just a horrific yeah. thing as being someone who is just listening to it on the radio feeling, you know, all these years later, like, Hey, you know, maybe, maybe we could have at least helped had we, had I followed my gut and got, got out of the station faster. Um, you know, it still has, it still has, you know, an effect on you. Uh, what about those guys that were there the whole time? I mean, obviously you would have been close to those guys, friends with some of those guys. Like how, how did they do in the, in the aftermath of that? Uh, I mean, I know a couple, couple of them were really shaken up pretty good. Yeah. Uh, over the whole thing. Um, one guy, the guy that actually was a, from what I was told, he was the first one through. He actually died a couple of years ago of pancreatic cancer, but he was a, I think he did three or four tours in the army. Um, so, I mean, he's seen a lot of, a lot of stuff, right? but you know, that's still, you know, talking to him, that still got to him. Right. You know, I mean, it's, it's different cause it was all, it was all little girls. kids. Yeah. So it's just, you know, uh, I mean, I was the only time that our members assistance program that I talked to them, like anybody that was out there had to get cleared through our members assistance program, um, get counseled by them and make sure, you know, and yeah. then if I remember correctly, um, I mean, I wasn't there anymore then at that point we end up leaving, but I think the shift that ended up out there towards the end of that for the, um, three to 11 shift from what I was told, uh, they had a suicidal guy in his yard and he ended up shooting himself in the head right in front of all of them. And they were out at that scene earlier in the day. That's what I was told. I don't, yeah. you know, which yeah. like, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's what you sign up for. I think I just get annoyed with people who don't want to show any deference to the police because you got guys that are going to calls like that. And then, yeah, they, they might be going to suicide. And then the next thing they do, they might be pulling a car over for speeding. And people expect them to be completely well adjusted and, you know, yeah, treat them a, a certain way. I'm not saying they should treat them rudely. Like, I'm not saying that you use that as an excuse to treat people rudely, but maybe you aren't as approachable. Maybe you are cold. Maybe you aren't, you know, what everyone wants you to be, but there's, you know, context to it. And I just think it's, it's, um, you know, important to remember that I, uh, you know, I, I, rem- I, distinctly remember that it was way outside our jurisdiction i was i was never close to the scene or anything like that uh i remember you know several years ago and i don't remember the name of it might be the sergeant who had kind of had scene command that then became a, a major or whatever but he did a training like a debrief of the nickel mine shooting thing for some sort of fbi training thing that the fbi put on that i was at and it was the most gut-wrenching uh, training. I was mentally exhausted after the debrief because, and the, and the point of the debrief is to help people understand, you know, you have things like this happen in law enforcement. And so these trainings, they do debriefs of these incidents to help other agencies understand what was done well and what was done poorly. 
And to sit in that debrief and listen to this guy, like, at points, struggle immensely just to get through the training and maintain his emotion through the training. I mean, it was like, it was the most riveting, powerful debrief I'd ever sat through. And it, it had an emotional impact on every, I mean, we're talking like there was probably like 100 people in this room. Yeah. And it was incredible listening to him like talk about it and struggle through it and then talk about the aftermath, talk about the Amish community and how their support of the state police like meant so much to them. And then also uh, how they end up forgiving this guy who ended up, who, who shot their kids. and. Um, yeah, it was, it was just one of the most powerful debriefs I ever sat through in my entire career. Yeah, I know there was a couple guys that went out. I mean, it was probably Doug Bjerg that um, yeah, I just might have done that one. Name. He was the one that was a sergeant that retired as a, as a major. Okay. Um, but there were a couple guys that went across. I mean, they, I think they even went up to like Canada and stuff. Yeah. You know, multiple places in the United States, you know, given... Um, things uh, they weren't like the only ones there but they were told this story you know and and debriefed it and you know and that's all we can do you know when you get a situation out like this is you know you need to share that information you know and, and figure out what what alternatives or what else could we have done or you know what what can we do to prevent something like that from happening again right yeah cuz up until that point you had school shootings and you knew that those types of things were possible in a school. I don't think anyone, I mean, no one would have guessed that that would happen at an Amish, like a one room no. Amish school, like of all the places, you know, for it to happen. But it's, uh, you know, quite a thing. So I appreciate you talking about it. Cause I, I mean, here's the thing, you know, you, you're, you're pretty humble about it. You say that, you know, you definitely weren't one of the first guys there. You don't try to, you know, bloviate your, you know, involvement in it and, and make it bigger than it was, but it still affected you. You were still there. You were still a part of it. Um, and, and those are things that, you know, a lot of people can't even comprehend being seen the aftermath of something like that, being there and, and dealing with it. And I think it's an important thing to tell people about. Yeah. I mean, like, that was in 06. Yeah. And I went back to patrol in 08. And I know, you know, I went to certain incidents at, at Amish houses and stuff like that. And they'd still, they were still talking about, they were still, you know, talking about, um, you know, one trooper, John Smith, you know, he was the one that, that died of pancreatic cancer then. But, uh, and a lot of, there was a lot of Amish um, that came out to that just, like to his funeral to his funeral just because they had that such a tight bond with him um and some of the other guys from there you know they would stop and they would have dinner with the family and stuff and right yeah it just uh it was uh yeah it definitely like i said everybody yeah like if you went there it always end up coming up yeah yeah you know yeah yeah it's a i can't believe that was 2006 it doesn't seem that long ago, yeah. Uh, but yeah, when I was when I pulled the story back up, um, when I was preparing for this episode, I I was like, wow, that was 2006. I can't believe it was that long ago already. Um, so yeah, and uh, pretty incredible. So you finished out then on patrol, 
and then you were at the at the police academy. Did you do any like field training before I, you were at the academy? Were you a field training officer? When or? I went back to patrol, I was a field training officer. Okay. Um, I only ever had one one guy, one pupil. One pupil. One pupil. How did that work out for you? Was he a good uh, pupil? Or yeah, not? he was a very good. Okay. Um, yeah, I was. It was good. I I actually enjoyed it. Uh, it was something that I always wanted to do. Uh, when I left patrol the first time, I definitely didn't feel like I had enough time right. to do it. Um, however, th- the way our department is, I mean, there's guys that have one and a half years on that are could be field training officers because you're in a bigger station that's got a lot of turnaround or turnover and uh you know you got very young members in patrol that you got to take who you can get to you know not saying that that they're not qualified most of those places like they've seen everything right like they've handled any kind of incident that you're going to be able to handle so they are prepared to to take them and you got to go to training to be qualified to be an fto but uh i had one guy but I was glad I did. However, when I when I got it, when I got the one guy to ride with, I think I was only out of uh, or back in patrol after spending nine years in vice. I was out for like <laughs> four months or something like that. So I mean, I was honest with him. You know, right. like I I knew how to handle incidents. There were certain things like I might not know that I'd have to tell him. Hey, I don't know the answer to that, but I'll find it and, and tell you. You know. Yeah. But uh, he's still in the job. He didn't get fired. So, yeah. well, I mean, unless he I, figured it out, maybe I helped a little bit. Yeah, I don't. I don't think it matters how much time you have on the job. Uh, when you train someone, there's there's times where something happens, and your trainee looks over at you and like, "What now?" And you're like, "I don't know, dude." Yeah, I guess we'll have to figure it out together because I'm not sure. I've never yeah. done this specific thing before. But and that's the thing. I mean, you could be you could go to. 100 burglaries but they're not none of them are going to be exactly the same yeah you know so there's something you got to take from everything and just but you're all that that was the other thing that i liked about um police work always learning yeah like you never it's not like i'm not saying like an electrician or somebody wouldn't always be learning i mean there's only so many ways to hook up a circuit you know or an outlet or whatever um i would imagine but i mean there was always something. I mean, I learned stuff when I went back as a, an instructor. Like, I was like, yeah, I never thought about doing it that way. You know? Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you do. You always learn. There's always more being added, which is part of why you're, by the end of your career, you're mentally exhausted. Yeah, exactly. Your brain just feels so full of stuff. And you're like, how? I can't even keep all this straight. But yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of the nature of the work. So I have just a couple more no, you, quick fire questions no problem i'll see how i can answer them funniest thing you ever seen or witnessed on the job one well i was doing a uh a pro or not a process well a prostitution detail kind of it was a uh we got kind of i don't want to say got stuck with it it originally went to um a county agency i'm not going to say who but it went to somebody in the county uh to do it for a township that they had people working in there wasn't an area that we covered. It was a local township and uh, they had a massage parlor. And uh, I went there, I don't know, two times. And I went there with uh, my partner. It wasn't the same guy as uh, was in my unit during nickel mines. But I went with a guy in my unit there and uh, they had robes for you inside the rooms. 
and they would walk you to like this shower room or something. I don't know. Well, I guess they didn't have a robe in his room. So I end up walking down the hall and he comes around the corner. He comes around the corner, butt naked. You know, I'm just trying not to make eye contact with him. It'd be right. strange, you know, just, uh, I was like, are you kidding me? Describe your career in one word. Gratifying. All right. Okay. Awesome. Why are why are Pennsylvania State Police troopers the best cops in the state? That's a good question. I was to say something smart, like because we wear the biggest hat, but um, you know what? That's a good question. I'm not going to say there's not a cop out there that's better than some of the guys that I worked with. Okay, but, but I think that. Uh, You know, you touched on it before with, with the academy and stuff like that. And again, you don't learn everything. You don't learn the job at the academy. You know, I always said you broke it down into three parts. The academy was just the first part. Like, you don't learn the job at the academy. Um, but, I mean, the amount of time that, that, that they put in there, the things that they, you know, it, it all and it depends on where you work. Right. You know, that's a good question. Yeah. I don't want to sit here because I'm a retired trooper and say, hey, we're the best. We're the great gods. You know? <laughs> well, I'll be honest with you. I asked the question because I, I was going to ask the question, why do state police troopers think they're better than every other police officer out there? I was like, no, I'm going to ask well, I mean, it. That would have been an easy one because we are. I would have just said probably if you said <laughs> I, that. But. I was like, I'm going to ask it this way, and then I'm going to give him a hard, di- hard time depending on how he answers it. So yeah. you, did, you did pretty good. I, I was going to say, I mean, there's, there's some – some local guys I've worked with like in crime rooms and stuff like that, that like if I got killed, I'd want them right on the case. Right now. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. 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 It was, it's there, there is an air to, to state troopers. First of all, they, they, I don't, I don't know why other agencies can't figure out where the state troopers get their uniforms tailored at. Like I don't know why Lancaster City couldn't figure out where to get where to get uniforms tailored at because the the state police your uniforms you guys are always in fitted uniforms you always look sharp. Uh, you know what I look at some other states, and I think they do a much better job. Really? Like there's other states that I know that they are like they come out and they actually kind of tailor you up. Okay. I don't know if it's right out of the academy or what, but I've talked to some guys from other states and they do that like. So they don't do that with you have to do, do you have to do it yourself. But but is it just instilled in guys that you will get your your uh, uniforms tailored? I mean, probably probably a lot of them just do it. I mean, okay, you're, you're it's instilled a lot that appearance Matters. means a lot, right? There's like, been studies look, to prove you that you look like a bag of shit, and right, I can swear on here, right? Yeah, you can do whatever. <laughs> you look like a bag of shit. You know, you might get challenged on a traffic stop. You look, and like you said, there's yeah. been studies done. You look squared away like people don't want to mess with you. Right. You know, so, yeah. you know, you ask why the state police are better. I'm not saying that there aren't, um, and you got to break it down <laughs> into uh, a lot of different departments. But, right. I mean, there's a, and I'm sure you've seen it too, even in your department. And there's guys that let themselves go. Oh, yeah. In, in our department too. But I think as a whole, um, I think the fitness aspect of the trooper and them thinking 
you know, how much their appearance matters. Um, and that just attention to detail type stuff. Now, you know, there's a lot of arguments like we, they've done studies with us for external uh, carriers and stuff like that, which would save guys, you know, backs and stuff like that. And right. Are more comfortable and everything. And I think the city, I don't know, is that optional whether you can wear those or it not? Was or? Still, it was still optional when I left. I actually, I, I hated the exterior vest. I thought they looked like garbage. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's the thing. A lot of dependent on the department, like. But, but some departments, it's, it's mandatory. And I mean, here's the thing. Like you work at a department and they say, hey, exterior vest, you got, that's what you're going to wear. Okay. Yeah. That's what you wear. But I mean, some uniforms make you look more professional than other uniforms. Yeah. I'm not saying that ours made us look more professional. I mean. I'll be the first one to get on here being retired and uh, say that I think it looks like hell wearing a tie with a short sleeve shirt. <laughs> yeah. Sipowitz. Yeah. You know? Or Sipowitz. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, you know? I, I, I asked, I asked the question cause I wanted to see how you would answer <laughs> because I'm like, you know, the state police, they, and here's the thing, the state, the state police in Pennsylvania are really squared away. I always thought they looked squared away. A lot of their guys are squared away. It's like any other agency. You have slugs. Like, yeah, exactly. But just um, like every yeah, but uh, but yeah, there were there were some like state troopers that you know you talk to and you're like, this guy thinks he's better than me just because he's a state trooper. Yeah, and uh, um, so I was like, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask I'm gonna I'm gonna ask Jason this question and just see how he answers. So it was pretty. It was a pretty humble yeah. response. You 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 definitely had like the state trooper edge to you. Like, yeah, we are a little better than everyone else. But at the same time, I've met a lot of other squared away officers. So yeah, I with other departments, that. absolutely. Yeah. I mean, don't get me wrong. There's a couple guys, and I could list them off right now, but I'm not going to in case they're listening. But there's a couple guys like I'd love to go to the retirement party, and when they say, "Hey, is there anybody else out there that wants to say anything?" and get up there and be like, uh, "Yeah, I could tell you, uh, you know, this about him and this about him and that about him." But then what would he talk about? Right. You know, because they just. Exactly. Like I worked with guys that just, you know, thank God most of them that I've worked with aren't like that. Right. You know, I mean, I haven't worked with any, you know, you know, how many people do you talk to that aren't on the job that say, oh, well, the only reason that you want to become a cop is because you like the power trip. Right. You know, you want to be able to speed legally and, right. and beat people up and, you know, do this. It's like, come on. I mean, if you worked... You know, twenty right. years, twenty five years, whatever. Like, you get tired of hearing that. Yeah, that kind yeah. of stuff. But yeah, yeah. There's there's good ones and bad ones in every agency, and uh, yeah. just like there's good and bad, it don't matter if you're a doctor, a lawyer, or whatever. Right. You know, unfortunately, you know, when the headline comes out, yeah, you know, I'll use state trooper again since that's where I came from. But you know, state brother, state troopers, brother, sister's girlfriend's uncle was arrested for DUI. You know. Right. headlines in the newspaper <laughs> you know it doesn't matter what department it is it's right. like yeah i don't even it however you can make that link to somebody as a law enforcement professional is is going to be done yeah yeah it's so going to sell can, papers yep it is going to sell papers but well uh thank you for helping to sell this episode thank you i appreciate you coming on talking to me it's been fun i've learned i've learned things about you uh and it, it, it was actually cool for me to kind of because I mean, I know I've seen you since 2008 when I was on SEU. I've seen you in passing here and there, but yeah. I haven't really, I haven't talked to you in several years. It's like been really, a while. Really sat down and talked to you. Yeah. So, but uh, yeah, 
Thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Q the Dip stands for kicking up the dust in pursuit. And each episode, I pick an officer who embodies what it means to kick up the dust in performance of their duties. This week's winner is Officer Michael Sularid of the Butler City Police Department right here in Pennsylvania. Last Tuesday, Officer Sularid responded to a call of a suspect acting erratically and jumping in and out of traffic. This is really exactly like the type of call I've heard people critique and challenge the reason for multiple officer response. In this instance, it appears that Officer Sularid did respond to the call by himself with no initial cover, at which time he made contact with the suspect who proceeded to stab him multiple times before Officer Sularid was able to retrieve his duty weapon and kill the suspect. Officer Sularid is a former Marine and coming to his aid was a citizen and Marine uh, who rendered the officer aid until help arrived. Listen to this interview on Channel 2, KDKA, CBS, out of Pittsburgh, PA, with this good Samaritan who came to the aid of the officer right after the officer survived and won this armed encounter. I told him you'd be okay. Just hang in there, buddy. Tonight, only on KDK, a witness who helped that officer. He, too, is a veteran of the armed forces and knew exactly how to provide first aid. That officer remains in the hospital tonight. Jennifer Brasso spoke exclusively with the man who came to that officer's aid. Jen. And George Smith did not have to hesitate about what he was going to do. Tonight, his firsthand account about the tragic confrontation that happened in the street behind me that left a Butler City police officer hospitalized and in surgery. So the policeman fall over here with a knife sticking out of his stomach and he reached over or he, he reached for his gun and pop 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 george smith found a butler city police officer stabbed in the stomach near his home on west jefferson street he watched that officer fatally shoot a man who investigators say was erratically jumping in and out of traffic i was standing right here and i felt the bullets go by me the former marine and vietnam vets training kicked in he was in pain and, and oh he kept saying oh my god oh, oh my god and please somebody he told the cops to please call my wife schmidt's instincts told him not to pull out the knife i just kind of kind of like had it just firm not moving the knife at all but just putting my hand with the t-shirt and trying to keep the blood flow and i knew not to pull the knife out i said sir hang in there because he was like i know he was traumatized too and he was starting to like i could tell he was starting to pass out schmidt kept him alive until help arrived i just rolled off the guy and you know and they put the gauze on him and i i got like i lost it i started crying schmidt is still shaken up feels he was in the right place at the right time. I have a guardian angel and I guess I was meant to save another fellow ex-marine and a young man. I'm a hero but I don't know if I feel like it. I just feel like I hope I help save a life you know. Sad that I saw a life end and I'll never forget. I still see his face. And George Smith tells me he believes the 27-year-old police officer, a former Marine, acted in self-defense, but he questioned why that officer responded to the scene alone. 
Reporting live, Jennifer Barrasso, KDK News. Officer Sularid is still in the hospital in critical but stable condition, according to the latest news reports, so he is someone you can keep in your thoughts and prayers for sure. Officer Sularud is this week's Cue the Dip winner, going toe-to-toe with an armed adversary, working through extreme injuries, and winning that confrontation. We need officers like this. Over and over and over again, we need officers like this. Or like Trooper John Smith, whom Jason spoke briefly about in our conversation earlier in this episode. Trooper John Smith, Pennsylvania Trooper John Smith, was a combat veteran serving mul- who served multiple tours in Iraq. On the day of the Amish school shooting when the suspect began to kill little girls, Trooper Smith was one of the first troopers to gain entry into the schoolhouse, breaking windows with a shield to get in and forcing the suspect to cowardly kill himself. He then helped carry wounded girls from the schoolhouse for treatment. He maintained close contact throughout his career and after this incident with many Amish families. A man capable of extreme righteous violence, but also extreme gentleness and kindness. Unfortunately, I talk to officers like John Smith, or I read about them uh, in the paper or online. And I read and I talk to them about leaving or wanting to leave law enforcement. Officers that are aggressive, proactive, and capable of doing what many could not imagine doing. And they are looking at retiring early because they are not wanted and many times are viewed as pariah in the profession of law enforcement in our culture and, in, and during this time in our culture. In contrast, you have what recently happened in Portland, where two political groups went to war with bats, chemical sprays, and paintball guns with innocent citizens getting caught in the middle, and the police did nothing. They just watched. Observe and report. That was their orders. Observe and report and hopefully make arrests later after identifying people. Portland Mayor Ted Wheeler stated that this was the right strategy. Although I wonder if he would think the same thing if he was one of the people caught in the middle or if it was happening in his neighborhood. Yes, absolutely. Doing something may possibly lead to more immediate violence. But it also sets an expectation. You also set an expectation if you do nothing. And what absolutely floors me about all this is that this expectation would be different if this type of behavior was happening where the mayor lives. I'll go back to my episode several weeks ago where I asked the question, what is the mission of law enforcement? Do we want officers like Officer Sularid or Trooper John Smith? Or do we just want officers that are really good in community engagement meetings or that look a certain way? So a chief or a mayor can virtue signal. To be clear, there are many departments with good leaders that want their officers fulfilling the mission, but there are also many who are losing their way. Let me take a moment and pick on my own police department from which I retired. On August 19th, the Lancaster City Police Department held a Coffee with the Chief event on Facebook Live. During that live chat, Chief Bay made it clear that the department wants to hire minority and female officers actually stating that they are actively recruiting minorities and females. He went on to say that they are too underrepresented on the department and that recruiting and hiring people from these groups is needed to build trust with the community. Now, I have no problem with doing a recruitment push for people from the community the police department serves or to desire for the demographics of the police department to mirror that of the community But if skin color and sex become primary attributes in the hiring process, you are moving down a very dangerous path. 
And the messaging of this Facebook Live was just that, that how a person looked was of primary importance in the recruiting process. The chief said it. And if that's the focus of recruitment, it's the focus in the hiring decisions. Just imagine if Chief Bay would have said, we are actively recruiting white males. Would have that been wrong? Everyone would have lost their mind. In the same way, those types of statements should not be made. There should be no such thing as a right or wrong skin color or a better skin color. There should only be, is this person the right person for the job? There should only be, is this person qualified? Do they have what it takes? Once you break the decision down into the best skin color or sex, the other things begin to become secondary with appearance, race, sex becoming primary. And if you make the primary goal and the primary quality skin color, you're on the road to make some really bad hires, as I stated before, because your desire for optics and to please people becomes more important than the quality of character, the ability to handle stress, integrity levels, physical ability, etc. Skin color and sex becoming more important than anything else because of politics and political pressure. This is dangerous. And it means that the fear of men and the desire to appease people become more important than the attributes needed to do the job. You would not want that if you were going to see a doctor. You would want the best person for the job. You could give a hoot what they look like. Now, maybe you think I'm overextending with my opinion here, but I suggest you go onto the Lancaster City Police Facebook page and watch the video. I think it's clear that race and sex are primary in the hiring process. That should not be. I don't care what color you are or what sex you are. Can you do what needs to be done under stress and when everything goes south? Anyone can hand out ice cream, sip coffee, and smile at people. Not everyone has the strength or fortitude to get stabbed in the stomach, have a knife hanging out of them, and take care of business protecting other people and protecting themselves and protecting other officers. Not everyone is able to do what it takes to storm a building with an active shooter in an attempt to save lives. Give me that officer. I don't care what color the officer is, but give me that one. That's the officer I'd want beside me. That's the officer I'd want to respond to an emergency at my house, at my kid's school, at my church. I think most would agree with me that they just want an officer who is willing and able to do the job and to do it well with honor courage, honesty, character, and integrity, regardless of how they look. I worked with black, Hispanic, white, Asian, male, and female officers. Some of them were really good, and some of them were really not good. It had nothing to do with their skin color or sex, and everything to do with the content of their character and their ability. And so it is with my maker, God Almighty, who shows no partiality, who gave his only son, Jesus, to die for my sins and the sins of all people, regardless of race, ethnicity, and sex. For all of us are sinners deserving the same punishment, death, and separation from him. And yet he provided a way, that being Jesus, who died for my many sins, and then rising from the dead three days later. Jesus, the perfect sacrifice, died for my sins and took on the wrath and penalty I deserve, providing a way for me to be considered a child of God. The gift of salvation received by those who bend their knee in confession and surrender, believing by faith that Jesus is who he said he was, that he did the work on the cross, and that at this moment he is at the right hand of God the Father. Every week, 
I try to get after it on this podcast and kick up the dust in support of law enforcement and calling out those things I believe need to be corrected. I'm passionate about it, but I try not to fall into the trap of just being part of the outrage machine in this country where I just rail about all that is wrong. I want it to be more than that. I need to remind myself every day that I have hope and his name is Jesus. If you don't have that hope, you can. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Kick up the dust after him. And if you're in law enforcement, do the right things and make the right decisions in whatever position you find yourself in. Kick up the dust in pursuit.